Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The road that leads to life. The road that leads to life. Almighty God, would you come and move today in our hearts? Would you cause us to know how to walk before you in righteousness? And then to receive that gift that, Lord, we could walk with you. I pray now in your holy name. Amen. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the groaning gate or the gate of affliction. Enter through the painful gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small or groaning is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I've considered many times that suffering gate and that groaning gate. But what we need to look at today is that it's this gate that leads into the kingdom of God. 
When we look carefully at this Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything in this story, sermon, that Jesus is going to share is about entering into the kingdom of God. Entering into the kingdom of heaven. And you enter via a groaning gate. And very few will enter it. Most will not. Then as you walk through this Sermon on the Mount, it becomes very obvious to us in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, the issue is entering into the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, which are doing everything correctly in the outer man. In other words, doing the outer works are not enough to allow you to enter into the kingdom of God. And that tells me immediately that trying will not bring me into the kingdom of God. That I can try as hard as I want to try, and what I can do is force an external righteousness in my life. But there is an inner place of desperate wickedness that springs up like a well in my soul that I cannot contain. It is a beast beyond my power. And so if I'm going to enter into the kingdom of God, I'm going to have to come via the groaning gate. That groaning gate is not because of external issues. It's because of this overwhelming flooding up of my soul that is an utter rebellion against the Almighty God. Now given that consideration... As I continue through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out principles where he says, I'm to love my enemy. I'm to pray for those who persecute me. There is nothing in me that wants to pray for an enemy. I want to kill him. At the very least, I want to ignore him in such a manner that he knows he's been put down. And the call of Jesus is to love my enemy. The call of Jesus in verse 48 of chapter 5 is, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You understand, we're looking at a standard of righteousness that would have caused the Pharisees to break into a sweat. In fact, it did. It made them very angry. And they said, if this is what Jesus is saying, let's just kill him. We've tried as hard as we can, and we can't do what he's talking about doing. Let's just kill him. I mean, we've done it the best it's ever been done in the history of the children of Israel. I mean, they understood that every time they violated the law, they went into captivity. 
judgment of God fell when they violated the law. So they said, okay, we won't violate the law anymore. And to make sure we don't violate the law, we will put laws around the law. So to make sure they wouldn't break the Sabbath, they made a rule that said you cannot carry an egg in your pocket. Well, I don't know about you, but we have found hard-boiled eggs to be very helpful to carry. No, I don't carry them in my pockets, but I do have a lunchbox, and we carry some hard-boiled eggs. Well, they were not allowed to carry a hard-boiled egg because that would be bearing a burden on the Sabbath. Uh, Ladies, no extra Kleenex. They were not allowed to carry an extra handkerchief because that would be bearing a burden on the Sabbath. Do you see what they did? To make sure that they didn't violate the law of God and thus incur his wrath, they made laws about the law. And then Jesus comes along and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of these who have put laws around the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And they threw up their hands and said, kill him. I understand that. Do you ever feel like killing somebody when they tell you, I'm sorry, you stretched a long ways, but you're not even halfway there yet? You say, wait a minute. I've rubbed myself raw trying to accomplish this. Don't I get a... I mean, aren't you grading on the curve here? No. No, we're not grading on the curve here. The command is, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I can't get there. I'm sorry. There's not anything within me that has the capacity. I mean, I can try hard. I'm willing to try hard. I'm willing to expend a certain amount of energy. But generally, when I have put forth sufficient energy and I'm incapable of reaching that goal, I throw up my hands and say, forget it, I'm going another direction. I mean, look, only a fool would keep banging their head against that wall to say, I can get through it. Pretty soon you're going to turn around and walk out through the door with a bloody head. So Jesus is coming now and he's laying out a standard of righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount that is beyond any of us. He's saying, look, If you get angry with someone, you have murdered them. If you look at a man or a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Oh, I was grateful for John Wesley saying, a bird can fly over your head, but you don't have to let him make a nest there. But all of us know the troubling kinds of thoughts that come up in our heart. You can be in your prayer closet, you can be reading the scripture, and suddenly a wicked thought will flash into your mind. And you say, I am certainly unrighteous. 
maybe God will give me a break. No, he's not. So this righteousness is going to have to come from somewhere and it doesn't come from me. And that's what they call the good news. That's what they call the gospel. This righteousness comes from the heart of Jesus and he puts it in our hearts. He causes it to spring up in our being. And we as a fellowship need to come to a place where we're tired of banging our heads. We're tired of trying. We've come to the end of our pride. We're we're finally willing to admit, I just can't do this. And then begin to cry out for the Almighty God to come and perform this work of grace in our hearts. As you continue through this Sermon on the Mount, he deals with money, he deals with self-importance, he deals with all of the issues. And then he finally says, okay, now enter the narrow gate. For, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate or groaning is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. This is where we need to begin to really take a look, an honest look at how our lives are before God. As long as there is any false sense of security, as long as there is any false sense of ability, as long as there is any game being played, any desire for my own ascendancy, any desire for my own gain, there will be a barrier that will prevent me from investing the necessary time and energy in seeking after Jesus, that he might give me that righteousness. There's a story in the Old Testament we need to look at today. It's found in Daniel, the fifth chapter. King Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the son of evil Marduk. Belshazzar was very concerned because Asia had been taken by Cyrus or Darius, as he's named in the scriptures. The armies were powerful. Belshazzar fought a bitter war. And in battle after battle, he was defeated until finally he retreated to Babylon. And he trusted in the mighty walls of Babylon to protect him from this king until peace could be made. 
He had shut the doors. He had stores of food and provision. He had much water. In fact, a river flowed under the wall and right down through the city. They had those magnificent hanging gardens, lush with vegetation in the midst of the desert. They had those incredible bitum walls and pillars of ivory, gold and silver. They had beautiful mosaics on the floor, on the walls. And he decided it was party time. And so he invited over a thousand of his best leaders. Many of whom had fled for safety with him to Babylon. Their cities had been taken. They came and they partied with him. As the party was going on and as the revelry was cranking up, the music was playing and the the dancing girls with their belly dances were going wild. The orgies were happening. Every kind of wicked thing was going on. In the midst of all of this debauchery, he gets a bright idea. Hey, you know what? Remember those gorgeous goblets that Grandpa brought from Jerusalem when he burned it. Those Jews are so proud and so arrogant. They think they're somebody. Go ahead and bring those down. Let's drink out of those goblets. There was no fear in his heart of the God of heaven. He knew his grandpa had been made insane He knew his grandpa had borne testimony that this was the almighty God. But evil Murdoch, his son, had not cared a thing for the God of heaven. And now his grandson cared even less. He scoffed at his grandpa's fear of this God. So on October 29, in the year 839 B.C., He asked that the goblets be brought for the party. They began to drink wine out of these goblets. And they began to praise the gods, their gods of prosperity. They began to scorn the living God of heaven. And suddenly on a wall, there was a hand that appeared... And it began to write in blazing fire on that beautiful wall. He was terrified. Immediately he called for the astrologers and the enchanters, the diviners, the the wise men. And he said, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it meant, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, the wise men came. They couldn't read it. 
no doubt, because it was written in ancient Hebrew script. King Belshazzar was terrified. His face grew even more pale. And in the the sudden change in the revelry and in the rhythm of wickedness, the queen mother heard. This was probably grandma. And she came to find out what was wrong. When she saw the handwriting on the wall, she said, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. They called for Daniel. Daniel's brought before the king, and he says, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Verse 14 of chapter 5, I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you're able to give interpretation to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing, tell me what it means. You will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself. What an astounding thing for Daniel to say to the king who could issue an order for his immediate execution. Daniel gives the king permission to keep his own gold. You obviously know by that that he is not speaking for himself. He is speaking as the ambassador, as the mouthpiece of Almighty God. God is saying now to him, you wanted your gold? Keep it. You thought it would help you? Keep it. Give your rewards to someone else. The God of heaven is not interested in rewards from you, little man. The insult is clear. But nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king... The most high God, you notice, he is putting God above Belshazzar. Can I stop a minute? Isn't it time for us to put the almighty God above our jobs? Isn't it time to put almighty God above all of our stuff? And recognize him as having the authority to tell us to keep our stuff. He doesn't need it. What did he do for year after year in the scriptures? He took what the children of Israel gave him and burned it because he had no use for it. It was they who needed to bring it. 
They had a need to give it. He did not have a need to receive it. I don't know if that's shocking to you. It certainly causes us to readjust our estimation of our stuff. And to readjust our estimate of our importance before God. I can't think of any more terrifying thing for God to say to me than, Ray, why don't you just go ahead and keep your stuff? You grumbled about giving it to me. Now don't give it to me anymore. You just keep it. Your judgment's tonight. It's over for you. Oh, does this change the focus a bit on our priorities? Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Oh, it's time for us to get off our royal thrones and cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus Verse 21, he was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Do you understand? This was totally inappropriate of Daniel to speak these words. After the king was restored to a sane mind, Probably, if you spoke of it, you would have been put to death. You didn't talk about the king of Babylon in these terms. Particularly Nebuchadnezzar, although I suspect he always humbled his heart. It was evil Murdoch you had to be concerned about, his son, who was utterly shamed by what happened to his dad. And now his grandson says, Let's scorn this God. Let's drink from his goblets. Let's party. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. We need to be very clear today. God holds our life in his hands. And it is appointed unto every man a time to die. This is what he's saying to Belshazzar. 
God holds your life. So get down off your throne. Stop playing as though you were the man or the woman and have the right to go do your party and you'll give to God what you deign to give him. You'll tip God. Tip him with a little of your time or tip him with a little of your money. And then you're going to go about and work on your kingdom. Oh, it's time to get off our throne. Now he turns to read the inscription. It's four words. Meeny, meeny, tickle, farson. These words could not be deciphered if you could not read ancient Hebrew. This is what it means. Meaning means numbered or counted, finished. It means I have reached in my pocket, I've pulled out the change, and I have counted it. He says, God has numbered the days of your reign. He has counted up your administration. And he has decided to bring it to a conclusion. Your life has been like a handful of change counted. I'm now finished counting your life. And it's over. Now, what's terrifying about that is that the God of heaven would pick up my life, the pieces of my life, and he would count those pieces. And then he would say, I have the sum of this person. Their life is over. Now, do you understand? God is coming to count the pieces of our lives. Some of them are shattered pieces. He's come to count the pieces. And when he's finished counting the pieces, he will say over your life and mine, It's over. It's finished. Take this life and put it on the shelf and wait for the next step to take place. The next step is tickle. It means weighed on the scale. Weighed on the scale. He says, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Literally, it means you have been weighed on the scale and found too light. The literal translation. You have been weighed on the scale and found too light. 
in that day there was a, a common practice. The king would issue coins of gold and silver. You would take the coin and it didn't have that little edge all the way around it like American coins have. It was a smooth edge. And so you would take your knife and you would carve off some of that coin. And it's funny, some of the ancient coins in museums that I've seen, half of the coin is cut off. Well, because they would shave off that gold and give that coin in payment, but they cheated. They kept some of the gold. This is saying, Belshazzar, you shaved the gold off your life. And when I come to weigh you, you don't weigh enough. You don't measure up. There's not enough gold in you. You say, this is what your value is. You're a $10 gold piece, but you're only worth five bucks. You've been shaved. How do we shave the gold coin? We shave our lives by taking pieces of our lives and giving it to the enemy. Giving it to darkness. Oh, we'll shave off some more. We shave off time. And we give our time to things of darkness. We give our our lives to casualness. Walking around as though we're the king, as though we're in charge, shaving off parts of our life and being able then to do whatever we choose to do because we shaved off a part of our life. And then when it comes time to be weighed in the scale of God, we're too light. We don't measure up. Now, if you're honest with me today, all of you are going to have to confess before God that you've shaved off a great deal of your life. You said, this part is mine. You can have this part, God, but this part's mine. You just shaved off another part of your life. Weighed and found to be too light. And then parson in the Arabic. It means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, it again is speaking about money. And it says, okay, here's your life. Four quarters. Here's 50 cents of Ray's life for you, and here's 50 cents of Ray's life for you. And I'm left with nothing. You could also compare these three words. Meaning, meaning, my days have been numbered My life is over. 
and it's time for me to die. Tickle, meaning I've been weighed in the balance. I've been found wanting. This happens at the day of judgment. And all of us must face that day of judgment. And Farson, my life is divided. And that is the same as hell. Where my life now has no longer any meaning. Everything of value is removed from me. And I'm cast into the depths of hell. This is the word that was being spoken to Belshazzar. Belshazzar immediately commanded Daniel. He was to be clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The party was over. Everybody fled. They went to bed in their drunken stupor. And they never noticed that the river running through Babylon dried up. The Medes and the Persians had diverted the river some miles away from Babylon. And now there was a free walkway right under the wall and into the city. And Babylon was taken and Belshazzar was killed. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small or groaning is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. My heart cry today, is that you do not know when your life will be numbered by God. When the pieces of your life will be picked up and examined and counted, and when the Lord God of heaven will say, that's all for you. And then to be weighed in the balance and to find that then my life is too light to allow me to enter into the kingdom of God and to be cast into hell. You see, we have a, a, a basic problem here. There was a day when every scholar in the world, every king in the world, every common labor in the world would have said, the earth is flat. It was taught in school. It was preached from the pulpit. The earth is flat, and if you go far enough out into the ocean, you'll drop off the edge. And they had pieces of artwork depicting 
the fictional dropping over the edge of sailing ships. And there was a warning, do not go out because if you do, you will die. The Nina, the Santa Maria, remember Columbus? The great fear of those sailors as they continued their voyage was that they were going to drop off the edge of the earth. Nobody believed that the earth was round. Does what you believe make it true? No. Truth is not established by what I believe. Truth is established by what is. God is the one who determines what truth is. An infinite power establishes truth. So when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, he said, what is truth? Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? And he didn't wait for the truth to answer. Instead, he crucified it. My life does not determine what truth is. Now, this is so very difficult because I can only wrap my mind around certain perceptions. And other perceptions I'm unable to wrap my mind around because they would be too radical for me to begin to even consider. Consider this last week. One of the Apollo astronauts made the amazing statement that the U.S. government is in regular contact with alien beings. This is not some kook out on the fringe. This is an Apollo astronaut who says we have absolute proof. We have even recovered crashed vehicles and back-engineered And that's what has given us certain technologies in the Air Force today. Well, I was speaking with a man about this last night. And he was saying to me, I can't believe that. I said, why can't you believe it? He said, because it's just outside of my sphere of understanding. This is not something I can comprehend. His truth was that we are alone in the universe. And he turned to me and he finally said, you're a Christian. Yes, I am. What's this do to your God? I said, my God rules. I serve the God who created all things. And these aliens are demons. Masquerading as aliens. Oh, he said, I can't accept that. I said to him, are you the one who determines what truth is? He backed up. 
He said, no, I'm not. Who determines what is true? God does. So it doesn't matter if you can wrap your mind around it, does it? What is true is true, whether you can wrap your mind around it or not. Whether you can perceive it or not, it is true. Whether or not I can get my mind around the fact that I can't make my own righteousness doesn't make it untrue. The fact that I am not able to perform in the way I expect myself to perform is not evidence that I am unable through the power of God to walk a righteous life. The word of God to our hearts is, are you willing to begin to expend all of your energy and all of your time and all of your heart into seeking after Jesus? Are you willing to humble your heart and say, I do not want to be weighed in the balance and found wanting? Now, there's only one way we can be weighed in the balance and not found wanting, because all of us have shaved our dollar. And that is by buying the gold tried in the fire spoken of in Revelation, the third chapter. And Jesus Christ is the gold. And he costs everything. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He does not say, try harder, and maybe you can follow me. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So take a moment and weigh your life from this past week. Were you adding gold to your life this past week or were you shaving gold this last week? Is your gold becoming shorter and shorter in supply or is it increasing in supply? Righteousness is a free gift given to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we will have the free gift, he will cause righteousness to spring up in our lives. If you live for pleasure, if you live for work, if you live for money, if you live for accomplishments, if you live for recognition, if you live for acceptance... You are a dead person, a living dead person. And your day will soon be numbered. And you will be found wanting or too light. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus? You cannot have the world in Jesus too. You're either shaving the gold or you're receiving more gold from Jesus.
And the cost is to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Lord, I know that you're doing a work in the National Prayer Chapel. Lord, you've told me not to be concerned about numbers. You've told me to be concerned about the soul of each person. For you want to do a work of righteousness in our hearts. You want the shaving of our hearts to stop. Lord, these dear ones have come forward saying, I have, I have been shaving my life. Lord, they're saying they want to stop. And they want gold added to their heart. Gold tried in the fire. Lord, I'm asking for the gift of righteousness to be given to each of those who have come forward. Surely it is righteousness, Lord, that is gold. And it only comes as a gift from you. Lord, would you deal all the way in this issue with each who has come forward? That this shaving away of our life will stop. Lord, that these offerings to demons will stop. And Lord, I know as soon as we leave this house, the temptation will be to shave some more for darkness. Lord, would you stop it? Restrain, O Holy Spirit. Quicken in the name of Jesus the heart of each. Thank you, Almighty God. I pray in your name. Amen. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found no Savior true, No, I was found of Thee. Thou didst reach forth Thine hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much as I on Thee took hold. As thou, dear Lord, on me, I find I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. Thou lovest me.
sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found no Savior true, no, I was found of Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory.